Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Susan Brooks, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2016. My name is Susan Brooks. I teach in the English department um, and I've been at Bethel. This is my 20th year at Bethel. I became a teacher I think probably because it was what I was supposed to do all along. Um, so my grandmothers were both teachers. My mom was a teacher, my dad was a pastor um, and when I was in sixth grade my dad planted a church in Wisconsin in this little town and so it was kind of the pastor's family you know, was the jack of all trades. We played, I played piano for the funerals and the weddings, and I, um, you know, was in the nursery, and I taught Sunday school, and I really enjoyed working with kids. I thought I was good at it. Um, it was fun to do, and the part about it that was fun was kind of figuring out what we could do that would spark their interest or gain their attention. But I wasn't really, I, I wasn't really sure I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't think I wanted to be a teacher just because that was kind of the, the family business, if you will. Um, so I came to Bethel. I was actually, I did my undergrad work at Bethel and I declared as a music major and also was really interested in English. So I was taking kind of a double track in music and English. I followed all the directions. If there was a way to do extra credit, I did the extra credit. Um, I. I really like to learn, but I don't. But sometimes lear learning and being a good student didn't always coincide. Um, when I came to Bethel as a freshman, I really felt like I'd, I'd gone to a very tiny high school in Wisconsin. That was, you know, it was a solid school, but it wasn't, you know, the passion for learning wasn't there in many of my classmates. And when I got to Bethel, and I was, I was meeting people and and going to these classes where we were studying these big ideas. You know, I was sad on Friday afternoon when the weekend came because it would be two whole days before we had class again. Um, it was a great, great opportunity to really expand. In my second year, I thought, you know, why don't I just take the introductory education course and just kind of see that I can either rule it out or decide if this is something I want. So I took the introductory education course and I was placed in a, in a middle school, in a seventh grade class. Um, teaching English for my field experience and it, and I got to teach a lesson and the lesson was on outlining which is a you know a super fantastic interesting uh, first lesson to teach and I taught the lesson and I could see that kids were getting it there were a couple kids that weren't getting it and then I'd clarify with them and then they got it and then I started to think wow this is something that's really interesting to me this is something I can do um, and so 
shortly after that I decided that I really wanted to teach middle school English. So um, that's where I landed my first year out of college. I taught middle school and a little bit of high school English in a real small town in Wisconsin. And again, just discovered that, that um, figuring out how material, how content fits with your learners was a puzzle that I just couldn't get enough of. Um, so I taught middle school English for quite a while. Um, I, I fought kind of in college back and forth between music and English and I landed on English because I felt like reading and writing were really, really important life skills. Like you can change someone's life if they learn to read and to write well. Um, and I didn't feel that way about music and I felt like, well, if I'm going to teach music, I'd better feel like music can change someone's life in the same way English can. And so I landed on English. I taught middle school English for quite a while um, and then was taking a year off to be with my kids and kind of regroup and the opening at Bethel came up. So I ended up at Bethel um, teaching people how to be English teachers as well as teaching reading and writing courses here. One of my grandmothers in particular, um, she she had a child who had Down syndrome and this was in like the early 50s and um, there was no provision for this child to get an education at all in the small area where she where they lived in Wisconsin so my grandma basically built a program for my aunt and she started a school she went back to school for special education she started a school for people who, who had special needs um, as my aunt got older, my grandma started a sheltered workshop for people with special needs. She started a group home. You know, she was just kind of this one-woman wrecking crew <laughs> making a way for my aunt to get the services that she needed. And so that idea of perseverance, I think I learned from her. I taught, especially my first couple years teaching middle school, with just these amazing people. Another, another person that comes to mind um, was a colleague that I had that was really, really intentional about connecting with his students. And he taught sixth grade, and we had a lot of kids. We had like 180 kids on our roster. And he would choose maybe half a dozen to a dozen kids that he made a point of kind of checking in with. And, you know, the kids that could get lost or fall through the cracks. Um, I learned a lot from him. Um, I learned a lot from my colleagues here at Bethel. When I, when I came here to teach, I think there were three or four teachers in the department who had also been my teachers. They were good teachers when I had them, but then when I got a chance to see how they had grown, I think that idea that you've never really arrived as a teacher um, also was really important. Um, and this idea that, that your students change, the technology changes, that the world changes, and so you're never, you've never arrived, like I said earlier, and that's, that's really fun. It's also a little bit exhausting, um, but to see my colleagues develop and grow. Um, Thomas Becknell, who is now my colleague, he was in, I think, his first or second year of teaching at Bethel when I arrived. I took his class, I had to take a 300 level lit class, and I'm like, well, I'm gonna be a teacher. I don't really, you know, it probably doesn't matter that much how I do in this class. Um, so I kind of showed up, I did the work, that's what good students do, and I wrote a paper, and um, the day that they were giving papers back, Thomas said, 
you know, here's a paper that I really think, this is a person who's thinking like a scholar. And he read my paper and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not just someone who's gonna be a middle school teacher, but I'm also a scholar. And that also made a huge impact on me that, that you also have to know the field and you have to be willing to engage with what's going on in the field. So um, those folks and lots of others really impacted what what I am doing today and what I'm thinking about today. Every once in a while, and not real often, but every once in a while I'll get a student who's really resistant, especially in college writing or inquiry seminar, that's really resistant. I don't want to be here. I don't need this class. Um, or I feel like I know I'm a fine writer. I don't need this course. It's, it's not going to help me very much. And the temptation is to kind of be like, okay, you sit there, you do your thing. I'm going to be up here doing my thing. Um, but that idea of getting in there and talking with them and saying, well, what do you think? What would be helpful in this class? You think that you are a good writer, which is true, but let's not waste both our time. Let's figure out something that you can learn or something you can work on that's going to make you better when you leave. Um, and that temptation to kind of disengage, I think, I think of those people. I think of my grandmother and my colleague um, when I'm when I'm tempted to be like, oh, I shouldn't spend my time on this person. He or she doesn't care anyway. Um, and, and it really is interesting how that makes a difference. Um, one student that I remember, um, she was a first-generation college student, came from a home that we wouldn't think of as kind of a typical, you know, Bethel family, if you will. Um, she had come here because her boyfriend came here, and so she was not as much kind of a part of the culture that some students might be. And I had her in college writing, and she was so, so, she was really struggling. So I, I had her come in, and we sat down in my office, and she just, you know, she talked about her life and all the different things that she was, you know, trying to adjust to at Bethel, and it helped me look at her differently, like, okay, She's not just a student who isn't getting her work done. She's somebody who has some pretty specific struggles that she's working with. And how can we make this class a place that's going to help her learn what she needs to learn? Um, and so, yeah, thinking about that, in fact, I ended up giving her a key to my office because one of the things she didn't have was a good place to study. And um, so she, she worked in my, she just came in and worked in my office, um, gave the key back at the end of the term, and that's the kind of thing I think that good teachers do, is they pay attention to their student needs. I'm curious. I think that's really important. Um, I'm somebody who, who just enjoys learning things. I love to read the newspaper. I love to listen to podcasts, just, you know, about whatever, because I just am interested in, in learning. Um, and so I think that is something that carries over into my classroom. It also allows me to bring different voices into my classroom because I'm always, I'm always thinking, oh, that article, I could use that for this, or oh, that's a, that's a funny cartoon, it would work here in my class. Um, so curiosity is one thing. I'm good with abstraction, and I'm good with, um, back in the day when we were all taking some personality inventory, I turned out to be an abstract sequential. And so um, this idea that I like 
working with abstractions and putting them into an order or a structure that's going to make sense to other people. Um, that's a piece I think that's really important. I like people, but I'm not a huge extrovert. Um, so I think there's, that's a good balance, especially working in English. I can sit and read all afternoon, but I also you know, need some input. So I think that's a piece of my personality that's important. And I think I'm pretty good at seeing things from other people's points of view. And so to be able to give people the benefit of the doubt, to be able to listen to them, um, we could always do better at that, but I think that's something that serves me pretty well. My first year teaching, I taught seventh grade English. I taught the purple level of eighth grade reading, which was the worst readers in the, in the group. I taught ninth grade English workshop, and, and that was basically the, um, the ninth graders who the eighth grade English teacher had determined weren't really up to snuff for ninth grade English. So I had 14 people in um, English workshop, 12 were boys, and I, I had three of them were named Chuck. So that was a challenge, but I had grown up in a small town, so the big draw was if we finished our work, I went to the drugstore and I bought like Field and Stream, Popular Mechanics, any magazine that I thought might be useful, and then uh, you know I bought a couple of fashion magazines, and, and so if we finished our work, they could have 15 minutes to look at the magazines at the end of the hour. And that was, um, that, that really is what saved us in that whole, from that whole, that whole semester. In fact, I'm like, wow, they're doing more work in those last 15 minutes looking at the magazines than they are doing, you know, with the curriculum. So that was a great situation to kind of try things, make mistakes. Um, some of the things that I think went pretty well is I, I've always been pretty good at planning engaging activities, at getting people active, at actively learning. I was terrible at classroom management. The old, um, you know, don't smile till Christmas. You know, if you engage in a power struggle with somebody, you better win. I took that advice to heart and it didn't work super well. I had one kid who I'm like, you are gonna sit there until you finish your work. And he looked right at me and then he pr proceeded to vomit on his desk and his book and his notebook and everything. And then he looked back at me like, yeah, am I really gonna sit here till I finish my work? <laughs> um, so I, I hope I've gotten better at building relationships with students rather than kind of wielding my power over students. It was hard, it was a lot of work. It's a lot of work to teach well and when you don't have that bucket of tricks, um, you know, to, to every day kind of have to be rebuilding something or thinking of something new to do or figuring that out, I mean, it was exhausting. It was really hard work. I got mono my first year. Um, so it's much more fun now to feel like I've got some strategies that, that work for me, that are good kind of fallback strategies that I know are gonna work and then I feel like, you know, it's like you get your house all built. I feel like my house is built and now I'm decorating. Now I'm doing the fun part, like what color paint should I put in or what kind of, you know, what kind of furniture should we use um, versus the, the beginning where I was building that house every day. It's interesting that teaching is this mixture of art and skill. Um, it's, some people say art and science and skill. And so this idea of trying something, 
assessing whether it works, reflecting on it, trying it again. Um, one of the things I love about teaching, especially in a traditional schedule like we have, is in September you start out fresh, you know, or at the beginning of the term you start out fresh, you try some things at the end of the term, you look back and say, did they work? What can I do better next time? And there aren't many jobs where you get to do something over and over and over until you get it right um, or closer to right. And so um, as I was especially starting out at Bethel, um, I was in the process of kind of taking what I had done at, in other teaching settings and seeing what worked. I took Spectrum early on, which was fantastic because it helped me understand more about who college students are, what their needs are, what their development might be like. Um, so thinking about how I can take, you know, take the, the things that I want to teach, take the, the methods that I know and translate them into a college setting, that was really, really helpful to do Spectrum and to kind of figure those things out. Bethel got a Bush grant, I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was something about technology and I think it was about the year 2000. So it was really kind of early in the process of adopting technology and that gave me a lot of things to think about in terms of what are the purposes of technology in the classroom and how can technology be useful, how do I know whether technology is appropriate and that kind of thing. And things I've learned in that workshop, you know, 17 years ago still stick with me, especially thinking now about, you know, you can use technology for everything, but how do I kind of decide what's going to work and what isn't? And, and how to leverage that. Trial and error is still really important. I'm not afraid to try something. I'm much less afraid to fail at something in this at this point in my career, and I'm pretty transparent about that with students. Like, we're gonna roll out this new technology, let's see if it works. Um, and I'm pretty, I mean, I don't like it when it doesn't work, but I understand that's part of the process. Um, the idea that, you know, if, we're, if I'm using new technology and I'm going to replace something, so if I'm going to do an online discussion that's going to replace a face-to-face -face discussion, the technology better bring another layer, it better bring advantages, right? So in an online discussion, for example, I have a written record of what people have said. Well, that's a good thing because I can look at that more carefully and, and, not, and be sure I didn't miss anything. So I have to kind of look at the pros and cons. But on the other hand, I don't have the opportunity in an online discussion in quite the same way to orchestrate um, or to take advantage of teachable moments as I might in a face-to-face in a -face discussion. You know, I, there isn't as much room for me to improvise as the discussion leader. And so it's this kind of um, trade-off. So is the ability to have a record of this discussion and maybe the ability to bring out students who might not otherwise say much, is that, is that more important or is that going to work better for my purposes than the ability to kind of take advantage and, and work in the moment with that material? So this idea of, of trading off um, you know, the, the model that's like substitution, you know, are you just trading one thing for another? Are you enhancing it? Are you revolutionizing what you're doing? Um, that's, that's helpful in thinking about technology. I think that there are stages, and some of those stages I think come just, they're natural to everyone, and I think there are also stages that perhaps are kind of, um, as, you as I've changed like the material that I'm working with or 
the students that I'm working with, sometimes the stages are forced upon you, <laughs> if you will. Um, I worked for a principal once who said, yeah, years four to seven are your peak years of teaching. And I thought, well, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I mean, seven years in, I was 29 years old, so that was a long time ago. Um, but I do think you need to think about, but, but it, didn't, it stirred me to kind of think about, okay, after year seven, how do I continue to have peak years? I do remember turning a corner of being like, I have now, I'm not up till midnight planning curriculum. That was probably year you know, three or four where I felt like I've got a lot of things that are useful and that work. Um, so that was probably the first stage. And then there was kind of a stage of, of um, thinking about other contributions to the institution because I felt like my teaching was kind of something that was going well. And so deciding not just, well, what kind of teacher am I going to be, but what am I interested in outside of teaching. So I, I really love curriculum. So I spend a lot of time working on curriculum stuff, um, designing materials for different, um, different initiatives in our school, that kind of thing. So I think that part, I don't know, maybe calling it like developing your professional identity, deciding what aspect of teaching is important to you. Other people coach, other people choose to do administrative stuff. Um, so that I think is maybe the second stage. That next stage coincided with technology just really exploding in the classroom. So for me, it was thinking about technology and, and trying to figure out um, what, what works, what doesn't work, how do I incorporate this, um, is this enhancing learning, how can I make it enhance learning. So those seem to be really connected for me um, in thinking about how do I do this better with the help of technology instead of doing the same thing again and again and again. I don't know if that would be true for everyone, but for in my case, the time that I was at that stage was also the time that you know, we were just seeing this explosion. And then I think there's also a stage that's more of a teacher leader. So um, you're not just only worried about what's happening in your own classroom, but what you can do to contribute to the institution. I, one thing I love about Bethel is it's given me the opportunity to, not, to teach as well as do leadership and not have to leave the classroom to do leadership stuff. Um, because that would be a really hard decision. So to be able to kind of teach some, but also have understand and maybe contribute to the bigger picture of what's going on in the institution. I think good teachers need to do more than just be excellent in their classroom, shut the door, my job is done. If you're really committed to this as a career, I think you need to contribute to the wider world. And now, so I'm probably 15 years from retirement, I'm really at a spot now where I'm thinking, okay, um, what might be the next stage, right? Um, what do I want to do so I don't, you know, burn out or coast? What are the parts of my job that I love and want to be sure I get to do more of? What are the parts of my job that maybe I can figure out a way to have someone else, maybe it's someone else's turn to do those things? So I'm not sure what the next stage looks like. I think we're a lot better at bringing people into teaching than we are at kind of thinking about how to make the most of the ends of their career. Um, so that's, that's what I'm thinking about. I admire all of the teachers at Bethel, but there are people who, um, who really are 
amazing in terms of what they do in the classroom. Um, you know, Thomas Becknell can lead a discussion like no one I've ever seen before. Um, you know, he, br he brings this kind of um, respect for the material to the classroom. He, um, he makes he makes people think in a way, he challenges them in a way that is gentle and compassionate. At the same time, he's really, um, you know, what, what people think are really important to him, he really listens. Um, if I could lead a discussion half as well as he does, I'd be thrilled. Marion Larson is the, like, the feedback queen. She is like so committed to getting papers back to students, to giving them feedback, to being involved in their learning. She's also um, an experimenter. We talk a lot about teaching. I love the way Sean Dickers, a lot of my students also have education classes, the way he experiments. You know, oh, let's, you know, he's just recently gamified one of his classes. And, you know, that, that, experimental attitude of trying things um, for our students to see that experimental attitude that's something else that I just I really appreciate about my colleagues teaching at a Christian liberal arts college really helps me view the future in a positive way as I look at my students I mean one of my secret goals for them maybe not so secret um, is that like these will be the people that are on the school boards when you know when I'm retired these are the people that are going to be in the House and Senate these are the people that are going to be making decisions about you know our society these are the people that are going to be pastoring our churches so I feel like working here gives me this opportunity to shape the future because because I'm contributing to these amazing students' education and seeing them go out into the world and really making a difference. Not so much by what they do, although they do amazing things, but, but just by who they are. You know, the way that I see, you know, our alumni navigating big questions in the world is just amazing to me. So, so that part of it is really inspiring and that's something that I, I don't want to lose sight of in kind of the minutiae. I was just talking with my brother who works at a very large um, software company near Seattle. And he is looking to hire a couple of people. And he graduated from Bethel. He was a philosophy and history. And philosophy was his major, I think, in history and psych were his minors. So he did the complete liberal arts education. Um, and he said, you know, I look around the people that I'm, um, you know, that that are kind of in the pool that I could use to build my team. And he said, they, so many of them have technical, technical expertise, but they aren't good communicators. They aren't big picture thinkers. They aren't necessarily good at thinking about systems outside of computer systems. He's like, I really need a good, you know, liberally educated person. He goes, I can teach them the technology, right? And, and so, I really have a passion. I wish the rest of the world saw, um, you know, saw that in the same way um, to, to help our students be able to contribute because they're people of faith, but they're also good thinkers and good communicators and have a good ethic and are just the kind of people that contribute to their world. So I'm, 
I'm pretty excited. I know lots of people get kind of, oh, you know, kids these days, oh, they're always on their phones. But when I look around Bethel, I'm pretty excited about the future and sending people like this out into it. Faith looks different in my two classes. Um, I teach English classes, English, you know, reading and writing and literature, and I also teach education classes. And so um, in my literature and writing classes, it's a little different. It's really looking a little more theoretically at how God has given us this gift of language. So we, um, we read things that kind of embrace faith. We read things that really don't embrace faith at all. Um, we talk about, you know, if we read something that's ugly, is God's image still in that ugly thing? Um, and is there a purpose, is there a place in literature for the ugly? And um, what is that place? It always involves, in, in any of my classes, it involves me bringing in things that I'm reading and writing and thinking about in my own faith journey. You know, wow, I just read this essay by Anne Lamott. Let me give you a little snippet of it. Or, oh, you know, I just read this particular, this particular thing. And, you know, what do you think about that? Let me share a little bit about my thinking. Um, in the education courses, some of it is also thinking about how we interact with our students, how we interact with our colleagues. We do a little bit of, you know, what's legal for Christians in public schools, but most of it is thinking about, um, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, which against such things there is no law, right? So how do we develop and show the fruits of the Spirit? How do we show love, joy, peace, patience in the classroom? And, you know, the best way for my students to understand what that is like is to see it in action. So um, that kind of modeling, thinking about, we do some kind of scenarios in terms of how might, you know, how does your faith play into how, do you, re how you react to this particular scenario. All people should study English, um, partly because it's a skill, right? Being able to read and write and be good with language is just something in life that's going to serve you well, both in the workplace and, and in whatever you endeavor to do. Um, people who read and write well, people who study literature particularly, are good thinkers. They see beyond the surface. They are imaginative. Um, they are able to um, put, their put themselves in other people's shoes, and there's been all kinds of press lately on how reading literature helps people develop empathy. Um, so I think that those pieces of it are really important, but I also think that literature helps us see the world differently. It helps us understand, like I said, see beyond the surface. It helps us understand that there's more, um, there's more there than what we see. Um, there's, there are stories that everybody has a story and there are stories underneath those stories and those stories are really what we build our lives on. Um, those stories are what we built our culture and our society on. And so to have an understanding of that and to be able to contribute stories to that kind of mass is something that um, that the world needs. We need to be able to to build on the stories that we've that we're operating by. Um, you know, I think about our political situation right now, and I feel like, you know, there are 
you know, in Congress right now, right? There are people operating out of one story and there are people operating out of the other story, right? We have to find somebody who understands that and can figure out a way to come up with a story that can help them see that there could be another way to do this. English just puts you right in the crosshairs of that. And it's, it's just something that um, they continually amazes me. I'm always marveling at the imagination of my fellow human beings. I marvel at the language. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Reservoir 13, which was, I think it was up for the Man Booker Prize. And the, and this, so this, at the beginning of the story in this little English village, a girl disappears. A 13-year-old girl disappears. And so the next chapter and all of the other chapters are just about this village going about its daily life. So there are probably 20 characters in the book, the guy that owns the meat, the butcher shop, and the, you know, the guy that, that owns the little small town newspaper, and all these characters are going about their daily life. And as a subtext, this girl is missing, right? And every once in a while, someone will find a piece of clothing out on the moors. And, the, and that'll be it. There'll be a sentence where someone found a white shirt. And then people go on their daily life and there's this subtext the whole way through of this missing girl that gets mentioned maybe, maybe one or two sentences a chapter. And I'm about, I think I'm 80% of the way through according to my Kindle. And I'm just like, how is this guy, I cannot wait to finish this book and see how, what's gonna happen with these stories, right? And I'm continually trying to figure out how the author is doing that and I have no idea. It's a fantastic piece of writing. Since we're human, studying the humanities seems to be a good thing to do. You know, the word human is in the humanities. Um, you know, how to be human, <clears throat> what does it mean to be human, how have humans answered questions throughout time. Um, I, think, I think the sense of history that the humanities gives, gives us is really important. Like, as we look at our crises today, the idea that, you know, there have been lots of crises in history. There have been lots of times in our history that, in human history, that we have run into really difficult things or really evil things or really tragic things. and. To have a sense of the ebb and flow of that, I think is really, really important. It helps us keep our perspective when things look really dire and when things look really good. Um, this idea that, that there's been this striving throughout human history to figure things out and the ways that we've tried to figure things out through philosophy and, you know, and language and music and, um, you know, and theology to to understand that kind of striving, I think is really good for us. It keeps us humble that, you know what, we, may, we will not figure everything out. The humanities helps us understand that. It helps us see, um, again, what's below the surface. Um, that idea of, I just read John Green's book called Turtles All the Way Down, which is on that kind of, um, the, the idea that you know we're riding on the back of a turtle and I'm sorry I don't know the civilization that believes that right and then you know that turtle's riding on a bigger turtle and a bigger turtle and a bigger turtle um, you know humanity is the turtles 
right? Humanities are the turtles that help us understand where we are, how we got here, and, the, and I don't know that we can move forward and do what's next if we don't understand those things. Studying the fine arts helps us understand human imagination and it helps us understand human creativity. It helps us understand, um, again, that there are bigger ideas under the surface. And so as we look at, I think art is a way in some ways of kind of accessing some of those big ideas or trying to make those big ideas um, come to the surface. You know, there are, and so um, part of what I love about the fine arts, even though I love language, is that many of them are, are extra, extra lingual, right? That they're using, that they're not depending on language to communicate a big idea. They're, they're, do, they're accessing another part of our brain. Um, so, you know, if I think about somebody who's really good at artistic thinking, they are able to respect and see what's below the surface. Um, they are also probably going to be pretty good at being able to see novel solutions to problems or, way, or being able to see um, ways that, that we can you know, advance in the world that other people might not have thought of. Um, I also love that the fine arts are built on this community. So many of them, especially music, you know, singing in a choir, playing in a band, um, that kind of synergy that happens when people work together. Um, there aren't a lot of other places where that happens, and I think that's really a great opportunity. All students should study the sciences because science is a way of thinking. It's a systematic way of thinking. Um, it, helps, it helps us know, again, how we try to organize the world. And I think whether you like an organized world or not, it's important. I mean, someone needs to have an organized world, right? And so I think even if I'm not going to be a biologist, knowing biology helps me understand how, like I said, kind of a way of thinking that organizes the world. It helps me understand, again, that there's more below the surface, right? That things are put together in certain ways. It helps me understand creation. It helps me understand nature. And again, I think you appreciate things more if you know more about them. So no matter what aspect of the science you're looking, you know, if you're studying geology, you will never look at a mountain again differently. You're going to appreciate that mountain. If you're studying you know, botany, you won't look at a tree in the same way. Um, so I think I'm glad that our students have to do science. Um, I wasn't really a fan. I took geology when I was here at Bethel because it seemed the least kind of um, messy of all, this, of all the labs. But it's true. I don't look at a mountain the same way. I have in my office, all my bookends are great big rocks. Um, so again, I think to think about sending students out into the world, they have to have some some respect and some appreciation for that world, and science helps us get there. Teaching is an art, a craft, a science, a skill. Um, so I think, I mean, there are all kinds of metaphors. People are always saying, what's a good metaphor for a teacher? You know, is a teacher a gardener? Is a teacher a jazz musician? You know, there, there are lots of metaphors, and I think part of the reason there are so many metaphors is because we don't 
we don't really know. Um, and the other thing is that there are lots of ways to be a good teacher. So I think there are teachers for whom gardening is a great metaphor. You know, they cultivate, they water, they, you know, they pour energy into their students. Um, I'm right now my favorite metaphor is is kind of a is a musician, right? So you have to learn some basic techniques. If I'm going to play a trumpet, right, I have to learn some things about playing the trumpet. But once I've learned some of those things, then I'm free to improvise, right? If I'm a trumpeter in a jazz band, in that moment, I make choices. I have the skills built up to make certain choices that are going to get the result that I'm hoping for. And so I think the improv improvisational part is kind of the art right but you can't improvise if you haven't if you don't have a good foundation from which to draw so that part of it is the skill and I think the field that kind of studies what's working what doesn't work um, the field that helps us understand whether something's working or not that part of it is more science and so you need to need to pay attention to all of those aspects of it in order to do well in the classroom. I would hope my classroom would be lively. I would hope that I am not doing as much work as my students. I've done my work up front, and when I come to class, then it's their turn to do the work. Um, I hope that there is a sense of curiosity, a sense of anticipation, um, that students are working with real questions um, one of my best inquiry seminar sessions this past fall was um, I brought in, my, my theme was change. So we were looking at, you know, what is change? How do people respond to change? And I brought in some poster board and we talked about three different kind of theories of change. And um, I talked briefly about them, maybe for about 10 minutes, and then I had the po on the poster board kind of like a little, a little graph of, of people's responses to change. And so there were these three different models, and then I gave each group a news article and said, okay, I want you to graph this news article onto this model. Does this model, does this article fit? So one of them was about a photographer set up a shot in a, with a whole bunch of monkeys and a monkey actually pushed the button on the camera. Now the photographers made all kinds of money from this photograph, but PETA is saying, no, the monkey owns that picture and the monkey should be making all the money from this picture. Okay, so I brought that article in. And so this is a huge change, right? That we're thinking how, in how we think about animals. So as I'm walking around the classroom, I'm thinking to myself, yes, this is what my class should be every day because students are, you know, they're arguing over what should go where and wh whether the model fits and how it doesn't fit and they're writing on their poster board, you know, and, and I was just walking around because I had already done the work and I had sent it to my students now to do. So um, that that was a good day. That's the kind of thing that I hope is happening, where students are discovering things, they're curious, they're engaged, they're having these moments of, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I see this. When that happens, then I go home happy. I really love teaching juvenile literature. 
it's you know it's a field that's always changing always growing it's one that I am I have some flexibility with some of my education courses I have standards that the state checks that I meet the state checks that I've assessed it so I don't have as much kind of flexibility um, my juvenile lit course is also hybrid so we meet in person one day a week and two days a week students work on their own you know with the with the aid of technology so I can do so I need, you know, 14 really gr great face-to-face -face events, right, when we meet. Um, and the rest of the time I can kind of structure the material to set us up for those 14 great hours. Um, I, I have a lot of students who experience aha moments in there in terms of, oh, juvenile literature is not something that's dumbed down, it's something that's written well. Also, I have students every year that are like, you know, I wasn't really a big leisure reader, but after I've taken this class, I really am interested in reading. I've got some things I want to read this summer. So that's probably my favorite, both because of the structure and the content. Um, but again, they all have their challenges. They all have, in, you know, they're all interesting in their own way. There are probably unique challenges to teaching English, but because I haven't taught a lot of other things, I might not know exactly what they are. Um, I think some of the things that we want to happen in the classroom in English that I mentioned earlier, like building empathy, being able to see beyond the surface, some of those things are really hard to assess. Um, I can give a test in English that shows you know, whether someone has mastered a particular skill, but some of the, I guess what we might call soft skills, those we don't have the time or money to assess. They, they can be assessed, but we don't have the time, money, or maybe even the expertise to assess them. And so there are times when, I'm, when I, a student will say something or something will come up and I'll be like, yes, that's what we're going for. But I think English might be more difficult in terms of assessing those kinds of thinking than some other kind of thinking. Um, I think the other piece about it that's, that's difficult is that um, in terms of teaching writing, you know, good writing takes a long time to do. And most of our students don't allot that kind of time to good writing. We have some that do. There's always this tension, and maybe again, this isn't unique, to build in, well, I don't want to overwhelm students with a lot of assignments. I'd rather have them spend a lot of time and do well on a few assignments. So if you cut back on assignments, then the question is, are they doing, are they putting more time into those, or are they just doing less altogether? You know, that kind of tension, both with reading and with writing, I think is one that we that we live with and are trying to figure out. At times we do struggle with getting students to read. Um, even though they are taking literature courses, you know, every in fact it happens more than you would think that in when we get our idea forms back, I like this class, but there was a lot of reading. Yeah, there uh-huh. <laughs> Turns out American Literary Survey, yeah, there's a lot of reading in that. Um, we've there are a couple of my colleagues are flipping their classroom and they're actually doing a lot like Mark in Shakespeare, you know, because Shakespeare really begs to be read aloud. He's doing a lot of reading in class and doing a lot of the, the ancillary stuff through video and through other outside kinds of things. Um, so that reading becomes part of the, um, part of the course itself.
Um, I have done a lot more with having students have to do some kind of response every time they read, even if it's not a big response, and then using that response to springboard us into what's going to happen in class. And that's been a strategy that, that I've that I'm really trying to perfect. So students come not only with having read it, like I looked at every page, but oh, I know in class we're going to focus on the river today. We're going to look at that chapter about the river and try to figure out what is the author doing with that river. Um, and so I've kind of set them up with some kind of response. So when we start, you know, students are already kind of warmed up. Um, so. Yeah, that is, it is a struggle. And I think students are, I don't know if they're less prepared, but the gap, <laughs> the gap widens, right? Every, you know, the, the gap is 20 years wider than it was when I started teaching between where we were living and, you know, the 1940s, for example, or where we were living and Shakespeare's time. And so as, especially looking at things that have been written in the past, that gap just gets wider and wider and wider. The expectations that I have for students are similar for what I have for myself. I want them to be curious, I want them to be engaged, I want them to be open to learning new things. Um, I try to make an atmosphere in which they can experiment and fail and be, you know, be transparent about that. Because I feel like if you come into any learning situation with those, with those attributes, you're going to come away with something, whether it's you're learning to ski or whether you are you know, trying to put together a, you know, your new computer system or whatever it might be. Um, so that sometimes is really difficult, especially for people who are going to be teachers because you know, future teachers have been good at school, most of them. They've played by the rules, it has paid off for them, and now they want to be teachers because they want to kind of perpetuate that system. That's not everyone. So to, to kind of develop, in my methods class especially, a place where, where we experiment and we fail and things go wrong and they take more time than you thought because, you know, you only had 29 minutes to get this assignment done and then something went wrong and it took 39 minutes that's hard for some of them. So, so I have to kind of, I work to kind of, I work against that notion of I'm going to come in, I'm going to learn the stuff, I'm going to get out, and then I'm going to be ready. Um, so that's an expectation that I have to be really explicit about. Um, often the other ones kind of come with modeling, but that's one I have to be very explicit about and help students understand that, you know, trial and error is what makes learning. If you don't ever fail, then you really aren't, then I'm not teaching you anything because you already knew it when you came in here. We are hearing a lot in education about relationships with students and how that, you know, is taking, it's, it's right now something that's really, especially in the K-12 world, is just, is just crucial as students are coming in with really diverse needs, as they're coming in with diverse backgrounds, um, that you can't that that you can't make assumptions about your students in the same way that you could have maybe even ten years ago, and the only way to quit making assumptions about those students is to get to know them, right? That you can see them as individuals, that you can um, get a feel for what motivates them, get a feel for what they're doing um, in your class, get a feel for for kind of what their needs are. 
Um, it's easier in college because students generally choose to be here. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have different needs, that they don't have different things that they want out of college or out of the classroom. So relationships are really helpful in that area. Kind of get a feel for what they want and how can you, how can Bethel or my class help them get there? I also think that if you're going to try and fail, right? <laughs> Not try and fail, but try and fail. If you're going to invite that in your classroom, then students have to feel really safe. And so they need to trust you. They need to trust each other. You need to be in a classroom where that, you know, where failure is, can kind of be normalized in some ways. Um, and that also is the kind of, the kind of thing that, that you must build relationships in order to do. Um, and I think the idea of humor is really important, that you can laugh at yourself, that you can laugh at the world a little bit, that you can see the irony in things. Um, and that is a, another really important piece in, in building those relationships. And there are students um, that, that really seek that out Right, the ones that stop by your office and say, "Hey, what have you, what you been reading lately?" and plop down, and you know, you have this amazing conversation. And there are also students who are kind of they're less interested in that. They have an agenda. They want to pursue that agenda. Um, and it's easy again to kind of let those students, okay, do their thing. But but I really try to, especially with my upper level students, try to also engage them and think about, okay, what. What can I do, you know, from the place where I am to help you get where you want to go? And how can we work together to, to get there? My student teachers, we always have a meal or two together, usually once at the beginning of student teaching and once at the end. Um, you know, I've taken, Kathy Nevins and I have taken students to the Boundary Waters a time or two. Um, conferences, every year I take um, my students to the Minnesota Council of Teachers of English conference in in April, and you know that kind of that kind of day to day stuff um, really makes a difference for me and for them. It makes me a better teacher. I think it helps them kind of operate in the wider world a little better. Um, and then it's just so much fun to see them out in the world doing their thing. I mean, social media is a curse, but it's a blessing in terms of getting to see oh you know, Ruth is teaching in Korea and I'm seeing her on Facebook every couple of weeks and I'm getting to kind of participate in what she's up to. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I would hope that they would say that I prepared them to do the next thing. That, you know, if it's inquiry seminar, that I prepared them to do better in their later college classes. If it's the methods course, that I prepared them for, you know, for going into teaching. Um, that I didn't just give them information, but they came out of that class with a real sense of um, what they could do, not just in that moment, but what they could do to learn more and to do more. Going back to my house building metaphor, right? So I want them to have the structure, that they've built more of that structure, right? So. So my methods course students that, you know, they've got the walls up now and the roof on and they know how to continue learning. They know where to look for resources. They know how to um, answer their own questions. They know how, they're, they're not afraid to, um, 
to find people in the field who can help them. Um, so this idea that they are prepared for the next the next thing, whatever that is, and they have strategies and skills that are going to serve them to, li to learn beyond what they're doing now. Um, if all of my students went away from my courses with that, I would be very happy. Teaching has definitely changed over my time as a teacher. Uh, I talked a little bit about technology earlier. I think the expectations of teachers um, are much higher in terms of um, there's more on the teacher in terms of engaging students and you know I it I think it used to be that you know teachers got up front they did their thing and it was kind of up to the student whether whether the student was going to engage and learn you know they studied or they didn't study they listened or they didn't listen and I think the expectation is much higher now that the teacher creates a structure that that makes it much harder for students to opt out, right? That we are in charge of kind of pulling them in in ways that maybe we hadn't been before. Um, I think technology has made us better teachers, but it has also made the workload more. You know, now we're, you know, you're building a Moodle site instead of writing a syllabus. Well, really, you almost have to write a syllabus plus build a Moodle site or, you know, I have to develop these assignments, but now technology has made it so I can develop these assignments and if I develop them right, they can get almost instant feedback, which is a great thing, getting that instant feedback, but that sure takes a lot longer than, you know, running off a quick true-false quiz on a half sheet of paper. So. So I think the expectations have gotten higher. You hear people say, oh, you know, nobody respects teachers anymore. I do think there is less respect for what teachers do than there has been in the past. Um, you know, it makes me crazy that people think that, oh, anybody can do this. How hard can it be? You know, how hard can it be to teach kindergarten? You know, it's really hard. <laughs> so I, so that piece of it, I think, is, is um, it makes me a little bit sad that we don't value teachers in our society like we could or like we should. On the other hand, I think the ways in which there are communities of teachers is, is exponentially um, positive. The ways in which schools and groups are saying, okay, we're not just telling, you know, we're letting teachers make more decisions. The idea of a professional learning com community social media, the, the Twitter chats and the, you know, following people on, um, following bloggers and that kind of thing, that, so even if you are in a setting where you might be the only person doing what you're doing, there's this huge community that you can connect with pretty easily. I think that's a great change in the field. Bethel definitely has changed. I've talked a lot about how the technology has changed, so I'm not going to I don't think I need to talk about that again. Um, I think obviously this kind of if you build it they will come was kind of the beginning when I started at Bethel, right? That we didn't worry that no one would show up to things, to, to you know, that we didn't worry that no one would enroll um, because there was kind of an expectation that this is who we are, this is what we do. Um, I think the community, and by the community I mean 
you know, the evangelical world, I think the, um, the world of higher ed, I think in many, you know, society generally embraced the idea, at least embraced more than it does now, the idea of a liberal arts education, the idea of a Christian education, the economics were more feasible. Um, so that feels like a loss to me, that Bethel has changed in that way, that, that partly because of economics, partly because of cultural pressure, that Bethel isn't able to put its money where its mouth is in terms of liberal arts education and those kinds of things. Um, so I, that feels like a loss because we're spending more and more time kind of justifying our existence, trying to sell our departments, trying to, you know, trying to entice students to participate in things. Um, we're spending a lot of time and energy on kind of convince pe convincing people that what we do is worthwhile versus just making what we do worthwhile. And that, like I said, that feels like a loss. That's a pretty big change. That That's my perception. I don't know for sure that that's true in general, but you know, in thinking about, okay, 20 years ago, if we had said, oh, you know, um, English, you know, having, you know, not having a vibrant English department, I mean, that's something that Bethel has to have, right? 20 years ago, everyone would have said yes. Now people might go, oh, well, you know, they can, they can get some, they can take some writing courses through their gen eds and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, they read in other classes. So there is, yeah, so that feels like a loss. Um, Bethel has changed, I think. We've always had good teachers, but Bethel has kind of embraced teaching and learning. I mean, we have people who are really leaders in the field of teaching and not education professors. You know, I think about Chad Hoyt. I think about, um, you know, Sarah Wise. I think about, you know, you guys on the CWC team. I mean, people really have risen to the occasion in terms of giving students absolutely top-notch classroom experiences. And that, I mean, we've always been dedicated to teaching, but I think we do some of the best teaching around. And, and that, I think we've grown in that area, which is fantastic. The advice I would have for new teachers is that you don't, that you don't learn teaching all at once, that you start with where you are, you get that, you kind of perfect that, you add a little bit more, um, you try new things, you don't get discouraged, um, and you continue to, to learn and to think and to, to hone your craft. So, you know, there's kind of this double-edged sword. Be patient with yourself, yes, but then also be relentless in getting better. And, and letting that kind of come, letting that go back and forth, I think is something that new teachers could do better with. Um, and the other piece is, I really believe that um, a lot of teachers might struggle in their first couple years because they're not, they're not organized enough. In, in, they, have, they have a vague idea of what they're gonna do in the classroom, but they don't have a plan. And so I really think that planning is something that is overlooked as a way then to, again, you can improvise from your plan, but to go in with a really firm 
grasp on what you want to have happen in your course. What's, how long is it going to take? What questions are you going to ask to help get there? Um, I think more planning can help you get to that point. I think for most students, it's important for them to realize that learning in college is different than learning in high school. In high school, it was kind of like, here are the hoops. You jump through these hoops. Here's what's expected. You do those things. You get an A. You move on. And in college, if we're doing our jobs right, um, students need to they need to get in there and dig, right? I read the chapter. Yeah, you read the chapter. You looked at every page. But how is reading the chapter different in, in college than it was in high school? How do you need to engage with the material? What's the expectation? So for students, things will take longer than you think. Um, you need to do more than just kind of answer the question. You need to answer the question and then think about the question behind the question. Um, you know, college as a way of thinking versus um, college as a way of kind of jumping through hoops. So if you're a good thinker and you're curious and you make connections, then you're going to get the most out of college. Well, Bethel, the advice I have for you is that we maybe can't do everything. Um, that maybe we need to think about what our core mission is and instead of going wider, think about going deeper. Um, instead of trying to cast a really wide net, you know, and, and please everybody to, to really come back to what our core mission is and think hard about how we do that well, how we communicate it to people in a way that's compelling to them, um, and then how we Think about communicating that, not just to the people who traditionally have come to Bethel, but communicating it to people who, um, who really need to hear about Bethel or should hear about Bethel. So I do, I mean, I understand that it's important to always be new and responding to the market and those kinds of things, but I do feel like we might be at a point at which we need to pull back from that strategy and start thinking more seriously about what our mission is, how we're serving students, and, and um, coming back to that core instead of trying to go wider and wider and wider.